Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode six of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. On tonight's show, coming up in a few minutes, family physician and author Dr. Chip Teal will be joining me in just a few minutes. He is author of the book Alone and Invisible, Averting Disaster in Aging America. Also, some updates from this past week. All that and a lot more coming up on Episode 6 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, starting right now. Hi, this is Kevin Bernstein, MD Student 31 on Twitter, and I listen to Family Medicine Rocks with Mike Sevilla. Welcome to the show that is passionate about medicine and social media. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. I am your host, the Rod Blagojevich of the Medical Blogosphere. My name is Mike Sevilla, family physician and social media enthusiast. What is this show about? I get that question a lot here. This is social media through the eyes of a family physician I invite you to check out the website at familymedicinerocks.com. You can also join us on Twitter and Facebook. Shout out to all 141 people who uh, like the show or who are fans of the show. Our Facebook does that now. Also, shout out to all 6,035 people who are following me on Twitter. I don't know why, but I very much appreciate that. You can also listen to this show in real time. On your mobile device, what is your iPhone that's tracking your every movement? <laughs> Droid, BlackBerry, Windows 7. Just direct your mobile browser to blogtalkradio.com slash famedrocks. Today is Thursday, April 21, 2011. It is 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And here at Family Medicine Rocks, World Headquarters, it feels like 45 degrees Fahrenheit. It has been raining here most of the week, but right now it is partly cloudy or partly sunny, depending on how you look at it. What did I do this week? Well, uh, again, it's just trying to, I'm working, I work with my practice here and uh, with my hospital, pushing towards meaningful use, all that electronic stuff that us physicians love, not really. <laughs> but I uh, had an exciting opportunity this week. Uh, I was asked to be on a panel um, at the Mayo Clinic Center for Social Media. That's right, the leading institution for hospitals and social media. I was invited to be on a panel at their October Social Media Summit in Rochester, thanks to Melissa Underwood, Director of Hosted Events for Reagan Communications. She's at TexasGirl11 on Twitter, and uh, already on the speaker list there. They haven't officially come out on this yet, but it's been on their Twitter stream. 
uh, Wendy Sue Swanson, Howard Lux, Jennifer Dyer, Lee Acey, Ed Bennett, E-Patient Dave, all confirmed to be in Rochester in October. And uh, I am humbled to be uh, on the same program as them. Uh, you can get more information over there at socialmedia.mailclinic.org. They also had their very successful conference at Swedish Medical Center in Seattle. That was all over the Twitter stream last week. And uh, talking about future shows, next week there will be no show next week because I will be at the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine annual spring conference meeting in New Orleans. I will be presenting there on what else? Medicine and social media. So I'll be excited to uh, talk about that there. Hopefully I'll be getting some interviews as well uh, at the meeting. And also immediately following this show on Twitter, very excited about this, the very first family medicine Twitter chat. And uh, I'm sure people may be talking about that in my chat room here coming up and also on Twitter. Uh, so I'll talk about that uh, following our interview here uh, this evening. So we're uh, going to have a little, little Twitter chat after the uh, after the show here uh, this evening. Uh, but coming up in just a few minutes uh, will be uh, Chip Teal, MD. He's from Maine, uh, Nobleboro, Maine, is what his book says. And uh, his uh, his book is called uh, Alone Invisible: Averting Disaster in Aging America. And uh, reading from uh, the uh, website from the book aloneinvisible.com. The author says, this book had to be written to get people talking and doing something about what is going on in America. Too many older Americans have already put up with too much isolation and loneliness. Too many communities have already squandered opportunities to harness the talent and wisdom of their older community members. There will be 85 million Americans over 65 years of age by the year 2030. Our current way of caring for them is not going to work. Not only is it too costly for individual citizens, it will bankrupt our government. Some people may be disturbed by what I've written. Some people will be engaged by the stories. But I hope everyone will agree drastic changes need to be made. It's easy to turn a blind eye to difficult situations and pretend they don't exist. It's hard for institutions and agencies to consider very different ways of doing things. This is why my colleagues and I are ready to work to make a difference. So we'll be talking about that coming up. But first, I would like to thank Blog Talk Radio for featuring the show again this evening on their front page. I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005. And if you're curious, yes, I am a real doctor. I am a proud family physician here in full-time private practice, meeting I see patients five days a week in the hospital and in my office here in beautiful northeastern Ohio. If you're listening live, you can see my shining face on the webcam here this evening. I just go up to the top of the uh, chat room, and uh, you'll see my old name, <laughs> Dr. Anonymous, in green. And you'll see a little webcam icon, and uh, you click that, and you'll be able to see me doing the show right before your eyes. Very exciting. Uh, and before we go to the break, I do want to give a big shout-out to the people in my uh, chat room. We have a bunch of guests in the chat room here this evening. Welcome to all the guests in the chat room. I encourage you to register here 
at uh, Blog Talk Radio. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of time, and you'll be able to type in the chat room. And if you have questions, you'll be able to type them into the chat room, and I will relay them uh, to our guest, also Neo Nursechek, and also uh, J-Man from the I'm With Stupid show here on Blog Talk Radio. You can hear their show Saturday mornings uh, or afternoon at noon Eastern Daylight Time. Um, so I think I have everything uh, set here. So uh, I will go to my break, and after the break here, we will have Dr. Chip Teal talking about his book, uh, you're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast in partnership with the Family Medicine Education Consortium. I do want to give a big shout-out also to the Family Medicine Education Consortium for helping getting the word out on this evening's show. I invite you to check out their website at fmec.net. And this show is also a member of the ProMed Network, a podcast you can get there by going to ProMed network.com and we'll be right back. That's right. Family, uh, social media through the eyes of a family physician. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. And on the line we have with us right now, live, uh, is uh, Dr. Chip Teal. Chip, welcome to the show there, my friend. Thank you very much, Mike. It's nice to be with you. Uh, and uh, thank you for uh, for coming on the show. Uh, I know there were some scheduling uh, difficulties last time, but I'm glad we were able to match up our schedules here uh, and to uh, talk about this really uh, important uh, topic. Um, so, Chip, uh, as I start out with, with all of my guests here on the show, I always start out with a very, very difficult question, uh, hardball question starting out. Uh, why don't you share with us uh, kind of your path towards medicine, towards medical school, uh, kind of share with us how medical school drew you there in the first place to uh, to take up this type of work. Sure. Uh, I was a late bloomer, Mike. I um had gone to uh, grown up in a small town in New England, and after high school and college, uh, where I had uh, tried to avoid sciences as much as possible, um, I ended up going out in my uh, end of my junior year in college to a student teaching program in Watts in L.A. Shortly after uh, the riots there, and so I was living and working. Uh, as a student teacher, and the advisor to the program was a black OBGYN uh, who was became my mentor while I was there, and he took me with him uh, to Martin Luther King Hospital. He introduced me as a medical student, even though I was inept at almost everything to do with medicine, and um, uh, I was able to uh, uh, attend deliveries, C-sections, third assist at some operations with him, and it gave me an inside look at medicine that was pretty hard to resist. 
But at that point, I was just about through college, and I was not going to go back and start pre-med all over again. But that thought stayed with me, and after a number of jobs, over eight or nine years, I ended up deciding, well, now's the time to go back and do pre-med and go to medical school. So as a 30-year-old, I embarked on that, uh, and uh, in my training, obviously, about every uh, field of medicine was attractive to me, and uh, family medicine was the only part uh, of medicine where you could do everything from deliver babies to help at operations to deal with uh, psychiatry issues to dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics. And so my attraction to it was really an attraction to all ages and the community. Um, So family medicine was a pretty easy choice for me. Um, And as I looked around the extensive training that I got in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, at the family practice residency there uh, was just spectacular, and I owe a great debt to them for training me in ways that would allow me to function very independently in a small town. I live in a town now of uh, a few thousand people where we have a 30-bed hospital, and um, I did everything from practice obstetrics for more than 20 years here to um, nursing homes and uh, a variety of first assisting and still do hospital medicine as well as office medicine just like you. Uh, and, and that's a story I hear a lot, of, and, and I know it's going to come out during our, our talk here uh, tonight about, you know, how much we love what we do. And and uh, I hear that from a lot of family docs uh, that I talk to and I talk to on this show is, is that, uh, you know, when they were going through the medical school process, I mean, they, they just they, they just love taking care of patients. They, they loved all aspects um, of medicine and uh, the, the, the relationship that that uh, that we have with our patients. Um, I know that we'll talk about more as 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 we talk about elder care, uh, but uh, yeah, this it's 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 just great, you know, talking with 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 other family docs who, you know, who are just as passionate about about taking care of patients, um, and uh, it's it, it's 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 just really nice to that, that we have a medium like this. Um, let me ask you there, Chip, uh, are, are you originally from the Maine area, or 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 how did you end up in, in Maine following residency? Um, I actually moved to Maine after college and lived and worked here for eight or nine years prior to going to medical school. So it was my adopted home before medical school, and it was only natural that I wanted to come back to Maine after residency. Uh, So I was looking for a a small town where I could be uh, a form of an old-fashioned community doctor, where I could uh, do all of the things that I've been trained to do in residency, where I could... Uh, work in a hospital uh, in an intensive care unit as well as in an office and could, um, as family docs do, take care of the vast majority of uh, all of the medical issues uh, that uh, impact someone's life. So it's a daunting field to be in when there is so much diversity and so much changing all the time in terms of medical knowledge, um, but the very basics um, getting to know your patients and being able to understand where they're coming from and trying to put them in touch with the parts of healthcare that matter the most to them is uh, it's it's a uh, second to none and I as far as I'm concerned concerned in jobs that people would like to do 
Uh, kind of uh, uh, paint the picture for for me and the listeners here as far as you know where you live and what's it called and and how big or small the community is, how how big or small is the hospital. Um, just kind of as a backdrop before we start into getting a little bit of detail, just kind of set the stage for us as far as tell me about your community and where you live. Sure. Um, Damascata is the town where our hospital and medical practice is. It is in Midcoast, Maine, which means it's about an hour north of Portland and about two and a half hours north of Boston. Um, it is <clears throat> a county of about 35,000 people. Uh, and uh, the county is served by our 30-bed uh, hospital that is about an hour from a tertiary care medical center in Portland. So in our hospital setting, uh, I would take care of uh, basic admissions to the hospital uh, from intensive care unit issues, uh, from heart disease to heart failure to uh, heart electrical problems, um, as well as pneumonias and uh, things related to stomach uh, ailments from gallbladder attacks to um, acute abdominal problems. And um, We have a medical staff that has moved, like many small hospitals, much more toward hospitalists over the last several years. And uh, our medical group is one of the uh, is the only remaining one in town that still takes care of our own patients in the hospital, even though that is uh, an extra onerous part of day-to-day -day life here uh, and certainly has been you know, a sacrifice in terms of time more for my family and my kids over the years than it really was for me um, because you get wrapped up with what you're doing and really it is in those hospital hours uh, at odd hours of the day and night that you actually get to know uh, your patients often very, very much better than you can in a brief office visit. So it's really a part of the glue that cements, I think, family docs to their patients, uh, and it's a whole part of the longitudinal care uh, that we uh, pride ourselves on. Um, uh, so the town is, it's cold here. It's <laughs> yeah. thirty five up there today. Yeah. <laughs> um on the on the phone with us we have uh family physician and author, uh Chip Teal. Uh he is author of the book Alone and Invisible, Averting Disaster in Aging America, and I'll put uh, the link to the book there, alone and invisible dot com into the uh, into the chat room. Um I do want to give a big shout out to uh, the people in our chat room here at this point. So uh, we we have a lot of guests here. Welcome to the guests. And uh, we also have uh, Larry Bauer, who is here, and uh, also Neo Nurschik, and also uh, Richmond Doc, uh, who is in our chat room here. And I did see the good uh, Dr. Synonymous, uh, Pat Jonas, also in our chat room here this evening. So welcome to all of you. Um, so, uh, Chip, so why don't we start diving into this a, a little bit here. So uh, your interest in the care of older Americans, did you always have that? Was it? Did you have that in residency, or was that something that that you really started uh, feeling passionate about after you finished residency and started, you know, practice? Uh, tell me a little bit about that link. Sure, sure. I think I actually grew up with that. I grew up next door to my grandparents and in a uh, in a small neighborhood where there were lots of extended extended family members. 
uh, around. And so I think it came quite naturally that I related to uh, my grandparents' age group. Uh, but when I moved to a small town here, it was really part and parcel that uh, it was easy to connect to the elders in the community and the elders uh, at that generation, which wasn't that long ago, 25 years ago, were very focused on staying in their own community. They figured that you were a doctor and you could solve the problem and why couldn't they just come to you and uh, why did you have to send them somewhere else? So they trusted me to take care of them and you build a special bond. And I think with your elders, uh, especially those with chronic medical problems, you end up seeing them sometimes monthly, uh, at least quarterly, uh, year after year. So over the course of 5, 10, 15 years, you end up seeing these individuals dozens, uh, if not 50, 60 times over that time frame, uh, more than you see most of your closest relatives. You know, so they really do become your extended family. And I think through those connections, what I was really hoping to do was find some way to share those relationships with other individuals because I was impressed uh, regularly with their talents, with their abilities, with their life experiences, uh, and with their genuine diversity and humanity that they uh, brought to every office visit. So I really was hoping that there would be some way to give back to them in some way what they were giving to me in a regular uh, day in and day out. So um, what was coming through loud and clear with a lot of their visits was that they were struggling to live in their own homes, but they were proudly uh, going to hang on no matter what. Uh, they might be downsizing within their own home, but they weren't going to move. Uh, they wanted a home-like situation. They wanted to stay where they were. And the options for them were pretty bleak, and many of them would shake their finger at me and say, don't you ever think of putting me in a nursing home. So with that, um, back yeah, I, I, I totally uh, relate to what you're talking about there, Chip, because you know, in, in my community here, you know, our, our practice, I, I'm in a practice with four other family docs, here in a small town in, in northeastern Ohio, and uh, very similar to your practice situation, you know, we go into the hospital, our small community hospital, um, and we see nursing home patients as well. And uh, I definitely relate to your story, and 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 uh, I have a lot of similar stories with with uh, with my older patients uh, waving their finger in my face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they certainly let you know what they think. Yeah, they certainly let you know what they think. So, so about 15 years ago, um, after giving, or maybe a little bit more, after giving a community talk, a couple of us got together to start to brainstorm around how we could set up home-like assisted living, and we uh, started uh, one by one a small network of community homes of six or eight residents. Uh, in the homes that would be centrally administered and would allow each group of elders to have sort of their own nuclear extended family, uh, hopefully in the neighborhood where they grew up in or where they had chosen to retire or live. And so uh, we now have seven homes serving 60 residents that are scattered around our county, and um, I've uh, been the founder and the president of the board of that group for since its inception about 15 years ago, 
but really the holy grail, as much as we did a very nice uh, first step with that move, the really the holy grail was how do you keep people in their own homes. And that was going to have to be something we were going to tackle because no matter how good a job we did of trying to provide um, home-like assisted living, it was still becoming more and more institutional. As, as I'm sure you've noticed, assisted living is getting to be regulated by the same rules that govern the nursing home world, and that is not necessarily focused on the kinds of things that are uh, essential to giving you a reason to get up in the morning. You know, so it really became important that we find a way to allow those that wanted to stay in their own homes, which is about 95% of every survey group of elders say they want to stay in their own home. So how do you get make that uh, uh, accessible? How do you allow that to happen? How do you empower them to do that? So I knew uh, that that had to be done, and not being a techie like you, I had to kind of learn from the beginning, but I, I knew it would have to involve technology and it would have to involve good old-fashioned neighborliness and community values as well. So I had to create a company and an approach that would blend those two things. Um, and at the focus uh, of all of this had to be the elders themselves. It really had to be empowered aging, uh, and by that I mean... Uh, setting up a way in which you can encourage uh, elders living their life to the fullest until the very end of their lives. Because as we experience all the time, most people are not actively dying, but for the last few days or few weeks of their life. So up until that time, how do you make every day, every moment, something that is uh, engaging, something that is real, something that is more than just marking time, because most of my elders had told me and taught me that what they really wanted to do was still be important. They still wanted purpose. They still wanted meaning. They didn't want to just be marking time. And so that required – go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. I, was, I, was, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I, I'm curious. I mean, you, you, uh, it's great that you're you, – you're up and running right now. Can you can you share with me a little bit, you know, just just how it, it got started? I mean, I know you know family physicians really need to be champions in our communities um, on issues like this. But was it very difficult for you to garner uh, support, you know, from um, other leaders in the community, or or, or did, did other people were, were they seeing what you were seeing and trying just trying to brainstorm some solutions for a common goal? Can you tell me a little bit about the beginnings of, of, of how you got the ball rolling? It's really been very, very difficult, honestly. Um, and, and maybe that's uh, my own uh, lack of business sense, or maybe it was uh, being too much of a social scientist. But, you know, I think what I was focused on was that this had to be done. Um, and so I actually... Uh, took out a, a home equity loan and just did it myself. You know, wow. I, I, made, I made one effort to try to get a grant from a statewide organization. Um, and uh, after spending a couple of months trying to put together a 200-page grant application uh, and all of the 
accompanying documentation and waiting several months and then getting turned down, I just realized that we had to just get going and do it. Um, and so what I did with uh, a small amount of borrowed money and some of my own uh, financial resources was I put together a pilot group of 50 of my older, mostly my older patients uh, from ages 75 to 95, and we met monthly uh, for um, a couple of years. And during that period of time, we were also launching a variety of uh, video services. So we were, I was convinced from the beginning that the only way to break down the loneliness and isolation uh, of elders was to be able to bring video calling and video conferencing into their homes. And That's I figured great. if if the guys on the evening news could talk to folks from Iraq and Afghanistan and everywhere else in the world, why couldn't neighbors talk to neighbors? And that if we could use uh, some of the video calling applications that are out there and simplify them enough, could we actually make it so despite... Um, not leaving your house or not driving at night and, and being more shut in than you were, couldn't we bring all of the community resources as well as the connections to each other uh, to bear on this issue? Couldn't we use the social media and the social networking that our youth were embracing, and couldn't we bring all of that to a group that really needed social networking, which was our elders? Uh, so hmm. it was about trying to take the things that were out there, and over the course of uh, a few years, uh, we have tried to also bring some other community resources to bear on it. In this place, I have gotten a lot of cooperation. When you These ideas really resonate with people when you say, hey, how can the folks at the library and the town office and the grocery store how can the folks at the high school and the elementary school, how can they become more aware of the elders in their community and how, can't, how can you bring these individuals uh, in touch with each other? And we did some simple things like setting up community lunch programs where Monday would be at the elementary school and Tuesday at the high school and Wednesday at the senior center and Thursday at area churches and Friday at town and area restaurants with a community table. So it was all about trying. Uh, food is a big part of all of our lives, you know, and if you do a little something that has something to do with food, as we all find in our own lives, the better attended meetings are those that serve food, you know. So it was what can we do to try to connect people to each other. Uh, but it was also trying to say we needed a really, really diverse menu because everybody uh, at home, because everybody's needs are so different. So how do you create a model that is essentially uh, a virtual or remote assisted living in your own home? How do you use the technology that is out there? So Skype has been very, very helpful. We used another video application before that called ConnectMe, uh, and there was another one called SightSpeed. And we use these various video networking platforms and by using webcams and computers, uh, we attempted to connect people to each other. Uh, we've had some problems initially five years ago because Internet service was spotty in our rural community, and then we also had some problems because a lot of the 
technology applications were more complicated. I couldn't get my dad to open the lid of the computer no matter what. You know, I couldn't get him to push two or three buttons in sequence uh, reliably to open uh, a Skype application. But now that we have standalone Skype phones, and we've been using one that Asus puts out for a couple hundred bucks, and with that it is a touchscreen, uh, it's a seven or eight-inch screen, and all it does is make Skype video calls. Uh, and so it has simplified the whole process for us, uh, but the whole backbone of what we were trying to do hasn't changed, which was how do you engage folks in real living? Because most of our older patients uh, want way more than what assisted living and nursing homes provide. It isn't about taking pills on time and focusing on bowel and bladder function exclusively and reducing fall risk. Those are not a good enough reason to get up in the morning. Those aren't what give meaning to our lives. It is the connections that we have to family, to friends, to community, to personal interests, to pets. Those are the kinds of things that really give us a reason to get up in the morning. And like I alluded to earlier, elders really want to do something for somebody else. To give you an example, when I spoke to a local church group uh, a few weeks ago, uh, there were probably 50 or 75 in the audience, and probably uh, close to 20 of them were over 90 years old. More than half of those over 90 signed up to volunteer to help somebody else. They did not need anything themselves or want anything for themselves. And I think that was kind of one of the aha moments for me over the last few years, is that if you think about what makes elders uh, tick, it is the same thing that makes any other you know, age group tick. And part of the reason that we have faced such a frustrating role with elders where they will not embrace the choices that we're trying to put down their throat is because there have been no good choices for them. So I don't think denial and avoidance is really such a bad thing when an elder says, no, thank you very much, you know, uh, great idea, Dr. Teal, but I don't want anything that you're offering. You know, if I don't have something pretty good to offer them, uh, it's not necessarily an irrational choice to say no thanks. Uh, so we really had to find a way out of this morass, and, and what I really found is the thing that resonates with many of these elders is truly empowering them to say, you still have something left in the tank. You still have something left that you can do. Uh, so rather than me politely rubbing their nose in all of their infirmary, infirmities and telling them how bad their vision is, how bad their balance is, you know, how bad every organ system works at the moment, if I can really start focusing on what it is they still have and what they can do for somebody else and what somebody else might get out of interacting with them, they are disbelieving that anybody would really care about what they bring to the table. But once you get them at the table, they really get a kick out of the fact that they can now interact with folks on a very different level. You know, so I think that's some of the aha moments uh, over the last number of years is really trying to say, why is there such resistance to embracing things that you would, you know, that are well-meaning. We as docs and as healthcare providers 
really think we're doing a very nice job uh, to, in a well-meaning way, create a supportive environment, but we're trying to make all the rules. We're trying to make all of the decisions, decide what's important, and then we wonder why no one wants it or why no one will accept it. You know, so we really have to look at it much, much differently and realize that uh, you just can't rub people's noses in their imperfections or their diseases. We really have to make that only a part of the picture and not the whole picture. Uh, my guest is uh, Dr. Chip Teal, um, author of the book Alone and Invisible, Averting Disaster in Aging America. And if you'd like to call in to uh, join in the conversation here, the number here is 646-716-9514. And uh, coming up, we'll uh, talk about uh, fullcircleamerica.com um, and uh, also some other uh, – I'm curious about these, these, these technology solutions uh, that you have uh, coming up uh, as well. Also want to remind everybody at the top of the hour here uh, will be, the, uh, will be a, 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 a Twitter chat from our good friend here at Richmond Doc, who's in our chat room here, uh, will be the uh, Family Medicine uh, chat uh, on Twitter. So we're trying that out, and uh, we're going to see what kind of response we have uh, for that. Um, but uh, Chip, you're doing real well. I know. I know. It's, you know <laughs> when people come on, if you get very, very, uh, very nervous and things, but uh, I, I, I hear you hitting your stride here. So uh, it, it usually <laughs> takes about. 20 and 30 minutes to, to, to get warmed up, so, so you're, you're doing really well. Um, let, let, let me ask you the, the question that uh, you know, a lot of people probably ask you is, you know, costs, finances. Um, sure. You said when you started out uh, this project, you took out a loan. Uh, uh, as far as your uh, financials, um, you know, right now, as, as far as how, how do you describe how that happens? Sure. Well, the, the particular operation, we're still scratching the surface here, but over the last four or five years, we have kept somewhere between 60 and 100 people in their own homes. And we didn't cherry pick. These are folks that are between 85 and 105 years old. They are folks that were qualified for nursing home care, folks that were even living in nursing home care, folks whose families were trying to move them to dementia units, folks that were in assisted living and wanted to go back home again. And if they still own their own home, they were able to do that. So we have moved many individuals uh, who were really quite frail uh, back into their own homes or kept them at home, and we have done this for something in the neighborhood of six, seven, or eight hundred dollars a month, rather than five, ten, or fifteen thousand a month. So by using technologies, and by technologies I mean we've been using a web-based application that somebody named Zanbu and recently been bought by AT&T, but it is a series of webcams that go through a controller that can do some video spot checking. And so we've used them, these things to supplement our own version of a lifeline button and the video calling devices that are the Skype phones and all of the personal care attendants and we've really found that the technology can be warm and fuzzy, and it can allow you to target care for individuals in ways that we've never been able to do before. You know, when I've, as you're probably asked, you know, how am I going to handle when mom or dad comes home from the hospital or from their skilled unit? How much care do they need? And we kind of throw up our hands and, 
you know, either somebody better stay with them all the time or they're going to need around-the-clock care because we really can't tell how much care they do need. And by uh, we've kind of pioneered this area and found that we can do video spot checks on a designated times per day uh, for these individuals, and with learning their behavior over a period of time, we can then reduce their care from 24 hours a day to 12 to 8 to 6. Some of our most fragile people are surviving for up to four years at home without any office visits or emergency room visits or hospitalizations uh, with two hours a day of personal care on site and 22 hours a day of remote monitoring. So if you do the math on that, you know, we've saved people about 90%. Uh, my poster girl, Helen, that um, died at home at age 98 last, um, uh, last fall, she was home for four years uh, after she decided she didn't like the nursing home anymore. So she was paying 10000 a month, which is the price for a private pay in a nursing home in the Northeast, and she moved back home again, and for six or seven or eight hundred dollars a month, depending upon which year we're talking about with her, we were able to keep her in her own home where she wanted to be quite contented until she died at home. We saved her family close to three hundred thousand dollars just themselves for that one family and that story is is not atypical of what we've been able to do. Um, it is not a medical model, you know. It, we, we don't run away from the medical things, but we are not trying to be a home health agency. We're not trying to be somebody that focuses entirely on pills and lab tests, uh, but we are trying to say first, right up front, what is it that this elder wants out of their life? So we absolutely focus on what their goals and aspirations are. And part of our intake form, most of our intake form, is really to start from that and trying to say, uh, what is it that you want to do with the rest of your life? If you're not going to die tomorrow, if you've got several years left on the planet, what are the things that are important to you and how can we help you achieve those uh, or at least empower you to achieve those? And so what we've been doing is really building upon that platform. And when you start from that premise, Everything else is easy because all you're really trying to do is implement what it is that they've asked you to do. And if, if mostly what I want to do is stay in my own home, then how do I arrange some remote monitoring technology with some personal care attendance? What kind of a budget do you have? And what is it that are the most important parts uh, of your day-to-day -day life that we need to shore up uh, or let you go? And so it is really a very common sense, very practical, not, uh, not uh, it's unique because it is so simple, but what we are really trying to do is focus on uh, the everyday parts of one's life with their families and what it is that makes sense to them, and then trying to build a weekly planner, a monthly calendar, a day in and day out, package for them around the things that they or their adult sons or daughters say that they want uh, for mom and dad. Uh, so these, these tech solutions, and they're, they're, they're 
out-of-pocket expenses or grants or donations, or are you working with payers? Uh, can you tell uh, me a little no, bit about it, that? It's cheap, it's cheap enough that everybody can do it out of their own pocket. You know, basically what we're – we have – we're keeping a whole lot of folks at home for about $300 a month. That doesn't require a grant, you know, or or it does – you know, it's cheaper than a long-term care insurance policy premium. You know, it is uh, it is within – if you can keep somebody – if you can provide enough technology to provide 24-7 monitoring uh, – uh, for less than one month's cost of assisted living for a whole year, um, you're doing pretty well. And so, you know, so our goal is, sure, I think at some point insurances and third-party payers will buy into this because why should they be paying ten times as much for residential care when people could stay in their own home for 10 or 20 percent of that cost? Um, and we have had a number of insurers like uh, John Hancock and uh, one of the Sun Life uh, policies that one of our customers had that were able to reimburse uh, the members, as we call them, for their care that they got through us. But an awful lot of the other policies require that you be a Medicare-certified home health agency in order to qualify for that kind of reimbursement. Others uh, like John Hancock, were pretty simple about it. They basically said, "Give us your uh, your tax ID number and define your care plan that you have for this individual, and we will reimburse them for their expenses." So I think the field will move that way, but we've had to find the early adopters. And yet, because our goal from the beginning was to make the price affordable for folks, we were. Um, our goal was to not make this so that it was only accessible to the very well off you know and we've not turned anybody down if if somebody couldn't even afford the three hundred dollars a month we have found community service organizations neighbors churches other groups to help provide scholarships for those individuals and we hope if we get big enough to be able to do this broadly uh, that part of what we will do is set up a funding mechanism by whether by which we can support the neediest individuals because there will always be people, no matter how low the price is, that it is beyond their uh, price range. Um, but for the most part, we feel if we can uh, provide a pretty robust group of services for a very attractive price, that people don't necessarily have to rely on a government or an insurance group, um, uh, if you can make your Rod, uh, your Rod Bergoyevich comment, I can say I, I jokingly tell a few people that this is even Tea Party ready. This is a solution that doesn't require extensive government funding in order to make it work. You know, so this is about communities taking care of communities. Um, in my uh, in the chat room here, uh, Richmond Doc is also a family physician. He types in here, uh, Dr. Teal's work reminds me of uh, Jeffrey Brenner's work in New Jersey, focus on what the community and patients need. You get lower cost, better care, uh, better quality, happier people on both sides of the stethoscope. And uh, Larry Bauer says, uh, in my opinion, 
you and Dr. Brenner demonstrate the power of the family physician. Uh, so some some good discussion in our chat room here uh, this evening. Um, let's see. So uh, well, yeah, one on the thing that here, Larry Larry and I have talked a little bit, and I think one thing that has resonated loudly with Larry is how the connections to family docs, of family docs, to their communities are very, very important, and that we have to, as uh, a family medicine education consortium or family medicine advocates, we have to make sure that family docs stay connected to their communities and that they still become an integral part of what's going on. I think their connections, um, as well as their training, allows them to play important roles, as you suggested earlier, as leaders in the community, and I think we are uniquely positioned to play a role. One of the most dramatic things that has come out of the last few months since I wrote uh, uh, and published um, a book on it was when I now speak, uh, there are a number of elders that come to the talks, and they leave the talk uh, as almost as militant activists, you know. So I think one of the most engaging things for me is that what appeared to be a daunting demographic problem is going to be very much easier if the 80 and 90 year olds embrace this so fully that they say, "How can I help? Where do I sign up? What can I do?" And that really has become. Uh, what is happening at a number of these talks that I'm giving is that the elders themselves are leaving and saying, we're going to go back and set up a steering committee in our own community. I've had about a half dozen churches within a couple of hours of me here that have purchased a number of books, and they have set up uh, 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 discussion groups with the book as the focal point of how that church community should reach out into their community better than they are right now. So it has really become quite profound that all I've really done here is really start to empower people to take charge of things that are going on around them and basically giving them permission to do what it is that they were hoping they could do which was stay active, stay involved. So it is, it's really been very exciting to see how this has been embraced by uh, older individuals themselves. And I think once there's a groundswell of movement from those, then we, we docs and we policymakers better hop on board or they'll just leave us in the dust. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that's a great uh, transition to I did want to talk about uh, full circle America, this this holistic approach and, and wellness model that you have, and I know you want to try to spread this concept um, around the country. Can you tell me a little bit about Full Circle America, FullCircleAmerica.com, and, and what you're hoping to sure. to accomplish? Sure. Here? Well, it's a it's a very ambitious. Some people would say, you know, almost um, almost foolish dream to try to say, can we export such an idea as this? I really didn't think four or five years ago when I started enrolling my first few customers that this would be something that would have such enormous potential. But I think, and I kind of expected that there were a lot of people around the country um, who were already doing similar things because <clears throat> we're facing, you know, a demographic that is uh, 
of 85 million people over 65 within 20 years. And within that group, there are going to be 21 million that are over 85, and there are going to be a million over 100 years old. These are numbers that nobody's ever seen before, and there are, there are something like 40 countries in the world where more than a third of their population will be over 65. We're dealing with things that do not make any economic, demographic, or uh, socially responsible sense to do it the same way we're doing it. You know, we, and so part of it is when you start trying to say, well, what is our planet, what are our countries going to do about that, we need some comprehensive solution. And I think if we sit around and wait for uh, agencies or governments to try to solve this, we're going to be waiting for a long time. They've been arguing about Social Security reform since I was in high school, you know, and we're no closer right. to having the political will to do that. So, so we decided we had to get together a group of people and an idea that would have the opportunity to be exported to other places. And so we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years, once we figured out what we were doing and what was resonating and how to do this, we then said, okay, can we export it to another community? So our goal here in 2011 is to replicate this in five northeastern communities. And so we have one uh, pioneering group in Bangor, another town in Maine, a couple of hours from me here, that um, uh, is a group called the Charlotte White Center, and they are going to branch out into providing elder services in their community. There's another, there's another family physician uh, and his wife in the Camden-Rockport area uh, that are going to uh, begin uh, an affiliate, as we're calling it, in their community in June. I'm hoping that a group that I've been meeting with in Rhode Island and one that I've been talking with in Vermont and then a couple of other places in Maine will also embrace starting to replicate this because until we actually can show individuals uh, uh, from funders to uh, insurers to actually just the population at large that this is replicable in other communities, um, uh, nobody really believes that it can be done. You know, it's an aberration because we're just doing it in one community. So we've set up a business model and we've set up a, uh, a national organization that we are starting to build the infrastructure to make this a turnkey operation for any family physician, disgruntled nurse, uh, uh, a refugee from a home health agency, uh, uh, a mature social service organization, a church community outreach group, any of these individuals uh, or organizations that would want to begin this in their community. We uh, are committed to finding uh, the resources and putting together the comprehensive infrastructure that it will take so that this could be a turnkey operation for those individuals where we will do the uh, technology support, we will do the, the packaging for individuals, we will do the monitoring, 
we will provide the administrative uh, help and the billing help and all of the organizational stuff that are a headache for a lot of small businesses for individuals who have connections to their community and have the heart and commitment that it would take to try to serve their own neighborhood or their own community. So Full Circle America um, is our umbrella for doing that. My family medicine office is called Full Circle Family Medicine, so that's uh, part of where the whole Full Circle America came from. But it isn't intended to be specifically a medical model. It is intended to provide uh, a support for those individuals who want to create a version of this in their community because it is basically giving people the tools to do this the exact flavor and the exact way that this happens in each community is going to be slightly different so people say well gee is this a, a glorified way of saying you're trying to franchise something well it's a way that we're trying to replicate it in other communities but i would argue that uh... since we're not charging a franchise fee and we're trying to do everything that we can to get this replicated. Um, and the daunting task is that if we're able to replicate this in 10,000 communities across the United States in the next decade, we will reach 1% of the target population in the United States. So that is, um, that is a very ambitious task, but it is something we have to undertake if we are going to uh, get there uh, before the tsunami, the gray tsunami hits us, it's already starting uh, to build up with us baby boomers, and it's important that we start to begin uh, this whole reformation uh, right away if we're going to get there in time to meet the need that is right around the corner. We're, in Maine, we have right now about 22% of our population is over 65 in Maine right now. You know, and, and many parts of the country are not very far behind that. Uh, so, so it is critical that we start to do this. And Full Circle America, we have on the, on the addresses that um, that you're going to put on your um, on your website. That if people want to contact me at doctor.teel at fullcircleamerica.com. I'd love to talk to anybody that has feedback for us that might want to get involved in some way, folks that would want uh, to um, participate. We, we've set up a remote monitoring package that we can put in a box and send to people anywhere in the country because we've started to get requests over the last few, um, uh, over the last few weeks from people all over the country who say, you know, my mom is in Texas or my mom is in Georgia or my mom is in California, uh, what can you do for me there? And it just seems uh, a shame to have to say, well, we hope to be able to help you in three or four years. You know, their need is now. Uh, so we put together a plug-and-play uh, simpler operation that we can do to start connecting and helping uh, individuals anywhere, and uh, we'd be happy to talk to anybody who um, might have a family member, friend, or relative uh, that wants to be the early adopters, the pioneers to help us 
um, do this further in other parts of the country. Uh, and actually, we have a uh, we have a caller here. Uh, actually, it looks like it's on Skype. So we will take this call here, and uh, I can get them on the line. If I can click this here. Hello, who is this? Hi. This is Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi. Uh, I wanted, wanted to make a, f- a few uh, comments. Um, the, the first, well, the first actually, is a, a couple questions. Uh, do either of you uh, doctors belong to the AMA? Um, yes, I do. Okay. Mm-hmm. How about the other doctors? Is he? Yes. Yeah. Where you Is this relevant to what we're talking about? Uh, yes, because I, th- you know, I, I think that, um, you know, like, you know, I guess the whole crux of this is basically, you know, we have a problem in the healthcare system, and uh, you know, um, this is why I was wondering because I think. Uh, uh, many physicians aren't, aren't aware that the AMA is part of the problem. They're a large part of the problem, right? And the AMA supports the medical-industrial complex that has taken over our healthcare system. It's made it by far the cost, most costly in the world, the most error-prone healthcare system in the world, and a healthcare system that really um, works for profit more than outcome. This is why so, I was uh, kind of so interested. Give me, uh, give, give me your solution. What's, what's, uh, what, what do you think you need to fix it? Well, you know, I think, uh, I, you know, I, from what I gather from, you know, what you're discussing, you know, I, I agree that that is a partial part of the solution. Having myself uh, worked and, and structured telemedicine and healthcare IT uh, companies, you know, I'm aware of the great benefits of, you know, of, of, of telemetry and so forth. The problem, though, is that the medical industrial complex controls everything so that, uh, you know, until we uh, 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 kind of break that uh, stranglehold that they have, um, I don't know that any type of innovation is going to provide um, – Better efficiency and lower costs, because ultimately well, they will, will be at the end of the gravy train. What I'd beg to differ is that a number of the individuals that we've worked with, they're not waiting for the AMA or your state or federal government or anybody else to step in and do something or not do something. They've decided that they're going to embrace these things because it is good for their life, it is good for their neighborhood, it is good for their family. And it isn't a medical solution. It is a human solution or a community solution. Um, And nobody has to wait uh, for the world to change in order to get on board. They can go ahead and do this right now. Uh, And uh, so, so what I've been so excited about, you know, rather than have to be a voice crying in the wilderness saying, how do we change organized medicine, the issue is you just reach into your community and start doing things locally, you know. And so you can start making a difference in a local community right now uh, without anything else other than things that are off-the-shelf technologies and basic human solutions to a problem uh, that we all possess, either the small business skills or the interpersonal skills or the community connections uh, or the volunteerism, or whatever it takes 
to do this piece of it um, and um, fundamentally change what is a very expensive part of the system right now and doesn't serve anyone very well, and that is the whole residential care component, uh, which eats up a very large amount um, of Medicaid dollars all across the country. Right, but regardless, what, and I don't want to. By the way, I don't. I don't want to. Uh, you know, try to diminish your enthusiasm um, for your for your adventure. But I just wanted to point out some some you know some of the discouraging realities of the industry, and that is the fact that we're still you know the the aged population is still um, you know the, really uh, led by the by the least by um, the insurance industry. I mean, you've heard about sure. what uh, sure. Congress is trying to do now with these Medicare vouchers, which is would you be a complete disaster and would 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 you know uh, cause more people to spend more money and on health care. Uh, because ultimately, I guess my point is, and it comes back to the initial question I was asking about the AMA, is that I think any improvements, any real improvements, are going to be led by the physicians who stand up and say, hey, you know what, we're sick of all this stuff, and and we need we need to uh, get health care back into the control of our hands and back into the control of the patient's hands, not the insurer's. Not the drug makers, not the bureaucrats. Well, that's why this has been so exciting for me. Because uh, are you a physician yourself? I, I'm. I'm not a physician. I. I. Uh, I, I do have a uh, extensive background in, uh, in in health and science, but I'm. Uh, in, I'm actually in, in public and private finance. So I've dealt with these types of ventures. I'm very familiar well, with, with telemetry. Well, what we're dealing with, and, and again. You know, this isn't so much about telemetry as it is about trying to, you know, use uh, some uh, video calling and conferencing stuff. But I think the the thing that, you know, as, as physicians, I'm sure Mike would echo this, we are dealing with every day um, crazy, crazy decisions uh, made in the name of us and our patients by uh, insurers um, and various uh people that try to decide pharmaceutical houses yeah. on what we can prescribe or not prescribe. And I think we'd both agree that that's completely wrong and nutty. But, it's, it's uh, but we, we've got, we've got to move forward. I've got to move forward. We, you know, I've been, I've been watching this uh, worsen, and, you know, my standing up and, uh, you know, putting in my two cents worth uh, to my patients or to any organization hasn't change this and and what this this is kind of in in many ways I see it as an end around uh that gets you into the end zone that basically if you want to uh rather than you know try to go against those 3 or 400 pound gorillas in the middle of the line I'm going to try to run around the edge and, and see if I can uh, accomplish the same thing by uh by getting that done a different way you mentioned uh, video conferencing. Uh, that's that is that's telemetry, though. I mean, that's you know you, well, you have to be. Uh, what I see as telemetry, telemetry in in my world, you know, is where a bunch of uh, physicians uh, monitor a variety of vital right. signs on people. Right. What I'm talking about is uh, what you do, which is uh, Skype call different people. Now that right. has no. Well, I, 
guess what I'm saying, I understand it's a it's a huge area, but the reason why I say it's telemetry is just because I'm sure, as you're aware, uh, you know, video consulting, uh, you need to be licensed. You can't just, you know, right? I mean, there's well, it depends upon the state. Different states have different regulations. Um, yeah, we're but, talking but about you, you have do you have to have a license to have a video call with your with your parent. Well, you I'm saying. I'm, yeah, I'm saying in terms of how that's part of the problem is that each state has its own laws regarding what they will permit in terms of uh, the type of uh, consulting from state to state, right? Well, yeah, we're not talking about – I'm not talking anyway about a uh, a medical consultation. Oh, you're, you're talking about a social – kind of a social network. I'm talking, about a, I'm talking about a social network. I'm oh, talking about yeah, – you know, I think that that is definitely there's, – there's no doubt that's definitely needed. I actually have written about that to some extent, how that's part part of a more comprehensive solution with the support groups um, in various platforms. So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there's definitely a need for that, and I think it will be – I think it will become very large. The question is, is that um, – you know, to what extent it will it will it will come around in terms of will it be you know the big uh, corporate giants who patch people into that or or individuals such as yourself who might uh, offer something that's uh, disconnected from the whole brainwashing mechanism. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, but, certainly, yeah, it's no... a, you know, it, it is a, it is a good discussion, you know, and and uh, um, you know, it's you know. Nobody has a solution. I mean, it's 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 an ongoing thing, and and uh, and I appreciate you calling in because I mean this this is the the type of dialogue that I think that is not happening that I think we we need to to happen not only at this level but but also at other levels too. So, uh, but but thanks a lot for calling in and and, and letting sure. us know uh, um, your viewpoint. Sure. All right, so we're closing things up here, uh, Chip. Um, so uh you know it's and you bring up a great point there chip because um you know we're you know we're we're not waiting for something to change we're not waiting for the government to say oh we can brainstorm solutions now you know i mean i understand that you know a lot of this is a political problem and a political problem that we need to get involved with but in the meantime how are we going to take care of our patients and it's going to be ideas like yours concepts like yours coming up from the grassroots and saying, hey, this is the best way to take care of patients, you know, and sure, there's a political problem, but we need to focus on the patient. And the caller said that too, that we need to focus on the patients. But but what you're trying to do and what a lot of other people are trying to do is, is trying to, you know, local solutions like you talked about, Chip, and, and, and try to start from there. Sure. Sure. Well, I think if we had to try to you know, sum up a couple of things. I would hope that your listeners and, you know, other people in some of these conversations, I'd hope to engender a sense of urgency uh, that it's high time we get going on this, you know. And I'd also like to, you know, just reinforce uh, what was in your introduction, that I think we're squandering the talents, you know, of up to 25% of our population. And if we try to harness this hidden resource, to do whatever it is we want to do. Let me give you an example. Uh, As our populations age, uh, any one of our communities across the country of 35, 50, 100,000 people, if you can get 10% of the people over 65 to contribute four hours a week 
paid or unpaid, toward a meaningful activity, you have a larger workforce than any other employer in your jurisdiction. So, in say, my say, that, say, say that say that again because I I want people to grasp what you're saying because that that's a pretty powerful statement. That as we are aging and as we are having 18, 20, 22, 25 percent of our population being over 65, if you will do the math in your own area, and we take 10 percent of the people over 65 and ask them to contribute four hours a week to a meaningful activity, you will have a larger workforce in full-time equivalents than any other employer in your county or jurisdiction. Wow. Um, in, our, in our particular county of 35,000, uh, our largest employer is uh, our hospital, Miles Healthcare, that includes a hospital, a nursing home, a retirement community, an assisted living, a home health agency, uh, and a hospice program. They have 350 full-time employees. Uh, this math in my county, with our age, would give me 400 full-time equivalents, and that is if only 10% of those over 65 contribute four hours a week. And most of the people, when you make the idea of getting involved this attractive, way more than 10% will want to get involved and way more than four hours a week. So if you think about it, if you had the largest, uh, if you had the largest employer in your county with all of its employees dedicated to what it is we want to do to reform community and reform elder care, there's absolutely nothing that we can't do. We have enough people, enough people power to do that. Um, and that doesn't say anything about the intergenerational connections where there are a number of youth for whom this resonates, there are a number of 30, 40, 50, 60-year-olds for whom this resonates. You know, so this is about building community, and this is about doing things that are within our grasp right now. You know, and I think that that's the... Um, the profound thing for me is you can take these demographics that might swamp us and you can turn them upside down and say, if we can use this hidden resource to solve our issues, there isn't anything we can't do. Um, and people say, well, what can, what can these 80 and 85-year-olds do? Well, we've got an awful lot of 85 and 90-year-olds in our cohort who are calling other individuals every day that are sharing their homes with other individuals who need a little respite care or a little adult daycare. There are all sorts of ways for people who don't necessarily drive or get out of their house too much that they can contribute, and it's really only up to our ingenuity to find out how we can break down the particular tasks that need doing and parcel them out to people according to their skill sets. That is a doable problem, you know, that, that any of the generalists like us can help solve. Um, on the uh, website, fullcircleamerica.com, you have listed some activities, you know, like you're saying, join a community call center, join a catering service, join a volunteer event crew, a lot of different activities um, that people probably wouldn't even think about before. Right. I mean, those are things that that anybody can do. I mean, we've got, uh, for instance, uh, 
a rather frail uh, older couple that happens to live in a nice house with a view of the water. Their volunteer activity uh, is to host somebody else coming in for coffee a couple of times a month. That's not a difficult thing for almost anybody to participate in, and it serves a very useful purpose uh, for both the recipient and the donor of that service. You know, so so um, um, we had a situation where my dad, uh, who's in his mid-80s and lives about 15 or 20 minutes from me here, uh, we had an issue last winter, uh, of not this past winter, but the, the year before, where the power went out for about three days, and there were two women with moderate Alzheimer's disease who lived in different towns near me, uh, one who had no extended family but was still living in her own home, and another uh, whose uh, son and daughter-in-law were out of town during the power outage. They had no place to go. We moved these two individuals, uh, both with significant dementia, into my dad's spare bedroom at the spur of the moment for 48 hours. Those folks found their way to and from the spare bathroom all night long. They ate wonderfully. They woke up in the morning and said, where are we, who are you, and where did we get here? How did we get here? Uh, but if you had told me a few years ago that you could have taken people with those frailties and moved them uh, uh, to someplace else and get away with it, I would have told you you were nuts. That's against the conventional wisdom of what you can do with people with dementia. You know, but this worked, uh, and they ate heartily. They enjoyed themselves, um, and they went back home. One of them actually went back home and got such a big emotional boost out of this uh, new human exposure that she actually was a more energized, more interactive person for a couple of weeks after this event. You know, so... <laughs> You know, so the thing is, uh, you know, necessity sometimes is the mother of invention. But I think all of these tasks, uh, another time, another older individual who was 90, uh, whose daughter was exhausted caring for him, um, had no place for respite care, uh, and she needed to leave uh, for a conference for a week. And I said, sure, let's move her in with my dad for the week, if that's all right with you. Uh, and we introduced these two folks, and then they, uh, uh, and my dad lives by himself. He's got a fair amount of short-term memory impairment, but he's a, a great conversationalist and uh, somebody who has an awful lot of self-preservation skills. Plus, he's monitored by webcams and motion sensors and all this other stuff all the time. And he has a personal care attendant that comes in for an hour a day every day. So it was no no difficult thing to add another person uh, to his house for that week. During the course of that week, both individuals grew and changed accordingly. Uh, my dad became uh, very solicitous. He, he switched into a caregiving role immediately, and he paid attention to what Elliot was up to. Anytime he got up to get himself something or go to the bathroom or anything, he'd check on Elliot and see if Elliot was all right. Um, there were other and through the course of that week, my dad became uh, a better 
person all the way around. He needed fewer reminders to take his meds. He did more dishes. He brought, uh, made his bed, took out the trash, and he kind of slyly would say to me, boy, that guy's got some memory problems. I hope I'm never like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he was actually even goaded into uh, just being a little better than he was before. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he now had renewed purpose and meaning uh, again and without any training was able to fulfill a pretty important role. So I think there are all kinds of things that we as a community when I mentioned this home away from home type respite care program at a local church, uh, another local church within the last year, uh, from the folks in the audience, within two weeks I was offered 40 beds uh, in different wow. people's houses. Wow. 40 beds. And these individuals did not ask whether the person was continent of urine, whether they you know, smoked, whether they were clean, you know, what they ate, what am I going to get paid. They just said, we want to do it because it makes sense, uh, and how can we help? You know, So I think wow. there is an, an enormous, enormous amount of ability out there to do things very differently if we just think about it. Um, and they're commenting in the chat room I mean, that they love your energy and you, they can hear the passion in your voice. And, and uh, I do want to, to share the blog, of it, the WordPress blog, fullcircleamerica.wordpress.com, uh, Talk about people being being pretty independent. The, the the top post over there is a blog post. It's called Elders and Belly Dancing from January 30th, and uh, I'll read from the second paragraph here. It's because it's it's very it's it's great. Among the performers on stage was an 83 year old Clara who gracefully moved in rhythm with her fellow students uh, as young as 18. Clara said in the program, "Quote: uh, There was an ad in the newspaper." Uh, that was uh, teachings uh, at Spectrum Generation, so I went uh, and was the beginner class. The other girl didn't show up, so she put me in the next class, and I've been trying to catch up ever since. Belly dance is a great exercise, uh, which makes it so fun. Belly dancing is for everyone. And there's a couple of great pictures on this uh, blog post here. So it, so you're showing through social media you know, a, a lot of these examples of, of, of what you're saying in words, and, and uh, um, I, I think it's, it's great, you know, using this medium to, to, to help share your story and, and what you want to share with people. Thank you. Uh, so I think as we're closing up here, um, I do want to r- remind people, uh, so the, the book uh, is called Alone and Invisible, Averting Disaster in Aging America. You can get more information at Alone and Invisible. Dot com. You can also go to FullCircleAmerica.com if you'd like to uh, uh, contact uh, Dr. Teal. Uh, his email is uh, dr.teel at FullCircleAmerica.com. And also at FullCircleAmerica.com, there's also a phone number there, 888-873-8817. Um, so just closing closing up here, uh, Chip. So, um when you started out this journey, um, uh, is, is this kind of the vision that you were having? What what, what other type of, um, you know, looking towards the future as far as other types of solutions, other types of um, uh, uh, ways to keep elders as independent as possible? Um, what other ideas do you have? Uh, do most of them involve technology, or is it a lot of uh, different type of solutions? What do you see kind of 
coming up as the vision for the care that you want to give older patients? Well, I think one of the things that uh, jumps right out at me is the um, is elders as mentors in their community. You know, we have uh, with the technology, there should be ways to uh, enable elders and youth, uh, whether they be primary school kids or junior high kids or high school kids, uh, to have a technology-enabled mentoring situation with at-home elders that could be, you know, a reading buddy, uh, somebody as a dialogue partner, somebody as somebody who could be a surrogate um, um, grandmother or grandparent to somebody. So what we're doing with our video calling and our Skype phones is once they're comfortable with the Skype phone, we're then saying, okay, no free lunch here. Uh, what do you want to connect with another peer, uh, elder? Do you want to connect with a young adult? Do you want to connect with a primary school child? Um, you want to connect to a single mom with a couple of kids somewhere in the country? Because that is all possible. And we are going to ask you uh, to receive a phone call, a video call, once or twice a month from one of these other subgroups. And so I see elders as being an untapped human resource uh, to address everything from educational to mental health uh, to various uh, uh, various other subgroups uh, that have, uh, have needs. Uh, one of the fascinating things is with this technology, uh, we've started to try to get the voc rehab departments in states interested because the ideal voc rehab job is a computer-based job that you can do from home. So uh, for the various monitors and other things, how many, how many disabled individuals are there at, at a younger ages who could also be given some meaning to their lives using the technology to connect with some of these elders? So, you know, it really is a limitless uh, possibilities when you start thinking about uh, things differently. And it's really all focused around these individuals. These solutions can be uh, created, you know, one small pot at a time. And uh, if you connect the dots with the technology and the human elements, there are any number of ways uh, that you can address a number of other problems. I've got a, a rather ambitious-sounding chapter um, uh, in the end of the book uh, saying you know, this, this whole approach I'm calling the main approach and it is how the main approach can help save America you know and it is about trying to take a look at how harnessing the talents of this 25 percent of our population can intersect with a number of other social issues that we're facing. Um, I'd like to put in a plug for um, uh, for the book as well, that uh, I've been lucky enough to have Chelsea Green Publishing Company out of White River Junction, Vermont, uh, who's a national publisher, give me a book contract, and so there will be a national edition of this book that will be coming out um, in probably in June, um, and so it'll be available on uh, your Kindle and your Book Nook and all of those other electronic media, as well as available through Amazon, 
uh, and bookstores across the country. So um, I think we're preparing and attempting to prepare for the fact that if these ideas have generated this much interest just for our self-published book in Maine, that once it is available nationally, I think we're really going to start having some serious dialogue about some of these issues, and uh, uh, it's going to require an awful lot of support and help from a lot of people to help ride that wave. So um, um, thank you for the opportunity to, to speak to your listeners. Yeah, yeah, the, Dr. Chip Teal, uh, thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, let me mention the book one more time here, Alone and Invisible, Averting Disaster in Aging America, aloneandinvisible.com, and also uh, fullcircleamerica.com. Um, uh, this is a, a really great discussion. We, we, we had a lot of good uh, interaction in the chat room, and I appreciate the caller calling in and uh, giving us uh, uh, his point of view. Um, and uh, this, this has been a, a really good medium to, to try to try to uh, raise awareness um, on this issue. Um, Chip, did, do you have any closing thoughts for us this morning, uh, this evening, um, as far as the book, or as far as this 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 uh, movement? Uh, that you've started uh, to, to try to uh, take better care of uh, older Americans? Well, I think um, just uh, as I said in the last month, um, things are starting to happen more broadly, and I have been approached um, by uh, a uh, school of public health in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, to help design a three-county pilot to keep elders in their homes. There's a statewide community action directorate of CAP agencies in Maine that asked me to present a workshop to the CAP agencies on how they could start getting involved with this in their communities. The developmentally disabled community uh, has asked to do a pilot. The United Cerebral Palsy uh, statewide in Maine has asked to do a pilot that could hopefully be developed and then expanded uh, to UCP chapters across the country. The, uh, the traumatic brain injured population and their board has asked to do something on this topic. So it is really starting to resonate also in a whole lot of other fields where the same approach of using technology, uh, trying to harness the talent of the index group that you are working with, and trying to blend some of these lower overhead, uh, higher tech solutions with uh, the the human elements being emphasized, and and it, it's really been phenomenal how much uh, interest uh, I've had. A whole lot of uh, elders uh, in Maine who have bought uh, five or ten copies of the book and sent it to their friends across the country. So things are starting to happen, uh, and I, I really think um, uh, I never expected that there would be this much resonance, you know, with uh, something uh, this simple and straightforward. And uh, um, I look forward to seeing what happens next. Yeah, and I, and I have to tell you, Chip, that there uh, that there is a, a a chat on Twitter right now. Um, the family medicine chat, our, our first one that we tried to put together, and uh, uh, the questions um, tonight um, are surrounding elder care, and I will all forward that link to you 
uh, because there's a lot of great uh, discussion that's going on. I'm pleasantly surprised by how much um, participation uh, that uh, that is going on right now. Um, I'm pretty familiar with the Family Docs on, on Twitter, uh, but there's a lot of other people who are chatting on this. Um, so it's very exciting. So um, so I'll definitely share that link with you um, uh, because uh, it's it's great. That's great. Well, um, again, maybe we conti- can continue this as a part two at another time. We'll see what see what else we can uh, stir up here. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, Chip Teal, th- thank you so much for for coming on the show. Um, this this has been uh, uh, super for me just just to talk with you because I I I, uh, I have an interest in in and a passion also for 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 uh, care of older people and uh, uh it's great to, to talk to to somebody who not only has the passion but has also has uh the solution has been implementing some of the solutions is not waiting for anybody to to give them permission to, and just to go ahead and do it and uh um you know a, a, as you have information you know about whatever your your speaking engagements or or about the website or about the book please let me know um i will share that on my blog as well to help to help spread that message too and so so thank you so much for coming on the show it's it's been it's been great talking with you well thanks very much for giving me the opportunity uh, so um uh, let's talk soon okay great great thank you and uh, take care okay yeah good night now all right uh all right kids so uh yeah that's uh, uh that that is uh, some good stuff there um so i i i did talk to chip uh before and um it, it, you can you know he was and he was really nervous when he started uh the show you know which most people are who have never done this format before uh but as time went along you can you can see him building or see him, you can hear him you know you can hear the the passion in his voice how much he believes in this how much um, he's invested in it, not only you know his own financial, but but you know from an emotional standpoint uh, to 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 you know to walk the walk and talk the talk, um, and saying hey you know I am willing to to you know go all in, <laughs> forgive the phrase, uh, for what I really believe in, and I think we need more of that. Um, out there, and that's kind of part of what this show was about—to to help share the story of, especially what physicians are doing out there to help uh, bring better care uh, to our patients. So, um, as I'm looking um, here, uh, the uh, the uh, the family uh, the the, uh, the the Twitter chat is crazy up here. It's blowing up. <laughs> it's blowing up over here, and I, I can't believe I'm not taking part in this. But I am archiving it, and uh, you can go to uh, FamilyMedicineRocks.com, and uh, I am archiving the uh, Family Medicine chat, and it, it should be uh, over there at the completion of the chat uh, this evening in case people want to review that uh, material. Uh, so thanks again to uh, Dr. Chip Teal. And uh, his book is called Alone and Invisible, Averting Disaster in Aging America, Alone and Invisible.com. Um, he's also saying that uh, that only is a paperback book, is also uh, electronic. I think he said Kindle as well. Uh, also check out um, his uh, FullCircleAmerica.com uh, site and uh, also his blog. Uh, his email address is dr.teel at FullCircleAmerica.com. 
That's it for the show here this evening. Thank you all uh, for uh, joining me. Great discussion in the chat room, and uh, thank you for the caller for calling in uh, to uh, uh, share your point of view. Uh, uh, there will be a no show uh, next week. Uh, I will be in the great city of New Orleans um, at the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine annual spring conference. I will be there presenting um, along with my good friend, uh, Dr. Uh, Deb Clements. We'll be talking about what else? Uh, family medicine and social media. I hope to get some interviews uh, from that meeting and to broadcast them on the next Family Medicine Rocks uh, podcast. So uh, thanks a lot, everybody. Uh, And if you miss any part of the show, you can also uh, listen to it on iTunes at any point. Follow me on Twitter, um, Dr. Mike Sevilla. Uh, You can get all that at uh, familymedicinerocks.com. That's it. So thanks a lot, everybody. Have a good week. Have a good weekend. Happy Easter, everybody. And we'll talk to you very soon. Good night, everybody.